0: This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, we're airing a talk with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, which he gave to a group of teenagers about how the Mass is a big deal. I'm going to take a guess what happens to your house every Sunday morning, right? Here's what happens. Let's say Mass starts at 8 o'clock in your parish. You get up at 6, you walk into your parents' bedroom. Mom, Dad, wake up! <laughs> <laughs> is everything okay? Yes, at 6 o'clock. Mass starts at eight. We have to eat breakfast now. So we can observe the hour fast and get a rosary in while we're at it. Come on, guys, get up! That happens Sunday every every Sunday, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah, right. Now, come on. Let's, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Why is it that so many young people your age? What is it that they say about mass? What is it about mass that you don't like? What, what's the number one thing you think I hear? Boring. It's boring. <laughs> now, why do you say it's boring? Simply this. You don't know why you're there. You're there because mommy and daddy make you go. You're there because you go to a Catholic school and they have mass here every day. That's why you go. But the thing is you have no idea what anything that happens at mass has to do with your life every day. Think of it like this. How many of you have a favorite band, a favorite like singer or a group, that if they, came, if they came to town here, you would wait all night in the rain to get tickets to see this group. How many of you have passion about a group Me. like that? Me. I'll pretend I didn't hear that. <laughs> what, what's your, stand up. What's your name? Okay, Ronnie, what's your group? Well, I have an artist. Okay, artist, okay, that's fine. His name's Drake. Drake, okay, all right, very good. Stand up, I didn't tell you to sit down. Okay, Ronnie, you come. you come home from school. Yes, and your mom. mom is going through the mail. Ronnie, I, I don't know what this is, but it has your name on it. She hands you the envelope. You say, I, I don't know what this is. You rip open the envelope. And inside are two tickets to see Drake. Getting, getting a little excited? <laughs> I'm not done yet. You want to see where you're sitting. So you look at the tickets. Aisle number, row number, seat number. And you realize, Ronnie, you got front row center best tickets in the house to see Drake. Get a little more excited? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I ain't done yet. You turn the tickets over on the back. And it says on the back of the tickets, go to the fan website, enter this promotional code. So you go to the Drake website, you enter the code on the back of the tickets, and now you realize that those tickets also give you backstage passes to hang out with Drake after the show. Yeah, you excited now, huh? Yeah. yeah. You know I ain't got no tickets, right? (laughs) Okay. But but, But the point is this, if we can get this excited about seeing our favorite singer, seeing our favorite group, why don't we get this excited in response to God's invitation who's calling us to share his life? Why don't we get this excited? Because that's what God is doing for us at Mass. And every Holy Mass, he is calling us, inviting us to intimate, personal, <laughs> loving, and life-giving communion. He is literally sharing his life with us. And what is our response? I'm bored. I'm, why? Again, there's no connection between what we do at the altar, what happens at Mass, and your life every day. For most of you, it's just like, you know, confirmations like Catholic graduation. You know, you take it off a list. I I got my driver's license, I went to the prom, I got confirmed, and you know what your parents tell me when I travel around here? They say, Deacon, I I don't understand. My son is away from the church. I, I don't understand why. He went to Catholic school. He got confirmed. He went to Mass every Sunday. I don't know what happened. What happened is your son is a fan of Jesus, not a follower. Your son loves the idea of Jesus, but he has no idea who Jesus is in his life every day. That's a problem. So how do we respond to God's? Because the deepest longing of your hearts, that's what you want. You want what Jesus is inviting you to. And I'll show you how. Now, the big genre that everybody, all the kids are in today, my son does it too. Pokemon Go, right? Yeah, Yeah, everybody's a Pokemon Go. Now prior, right before the Pokemon Go thing, a lot of uh, kids your age are into this whole dystopian theme, these movies with dystopian themes like uh, Hunger Games, Maze Runner, Inception, Insurrection, all these type of movies, right? So, So a dystopian, right, a dystopian means it's a future where everything is disordered and chaotic, whereas Utopia is a future where everything is perfect. Now right before that became very popular, what was the genre? that was popular with teens? Like for example, for the girls. Books, movies, even televisions. What was genre that was popular with, with the girls? Vamp- vampires. vampires. Remember that? Like oh, yeah. Breaking Dawn, and what was the other one? Twilight. Twilight, Twilight yeah. traffic light, stoplight. look. <laughs> I ain't got nothing against vampires, all right? I used to like vampires too when I was a kid. Our vampires were different. They had long black capes. And they went like this, and the priest would hold up the crucifix, and they or the priest would have the holy water. He'd hit him with the holy water, would land on the vampire, and burn them. Aah! Or they walk out to the sunlight, and they melt. Aah! These new vampires walk out in the sunlight, and they sparkle. When did that start? What about for the guys? The girls had the vampires. What's popular, in fact, it's still popular today for the guys. Root movies, video games. Zombies! There's even something called a zombie apocalypse. I, I'm still trying to figure out what that is. But here's the thing: what do vampires and zombies have in common? They're dead! Is that what? They're dead, but yet they're alive. Now, what does a vampire that's dead have to do to stay alive? Drink blood. What does a zombie that's dead have to do to stay alive? Eat flesh. So what you're really craving is flesh and blood. But because you don't know why you're at Mass, because you don't see a connection between Mass and your life every day, you're trying to find flesh and blood in creatures that are dead that can't give you nothing except take your money. When for free. And why is it free? Because Jesus already paid the price. You can come to the holy sacrifice of the Mass and receive The true bread that came down from heaven. (laughs) Jesus says in John chapter 6, your fathers ate the manna in the desert and they died. He who eats this bread will live forever because the bread that I give you is my flesh flesh for the life of the world. And the word in Greek is sarx, which literally means flesh on on the bone. When he says eat my flesh, trogos in Greek means to munch and to chew. So Jesus meant it literally. This is not reality TV. <laughs> when you come to Mass, you are entering into a reality that will lead you to eternal life with God in heaven. It is literally God sharing his life. The God that created the universe, everything that exists and everything will, that will ever exist wants to share his life with you. And that's what he's doing at every Mass. So how are you to take experience what's going on at Mass? of it like this. How many athletes we got up in here? Me. We got a lot of athletes here, right? What sport you play? Football, no, you mean so- soccer, right? We call it, okay, yeah. football, I got you, football. Cricket. Cr- hey, cricket, excellent. Oh, no. I, you know, originally I was born in Barbados, and that's the sport of my, of my country is cricket, excellent. Rugby and basketball, fantastic. Baseball, very good. Basketball, any other athletes here? Okay, excellent. Now, all you athletes in here, do you go to practice? Yeah. yeah, excellent. Why? I'm gonna get to get better. better. To, get better no. to no. Be no, 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 no. Here's, no, here's the thing. I also played a sport in high school. I wrestled all my four years of high school. Not, not that WWF fake stuff. <laughs> right. I'm talking about like a, the Olympics that were just like Olympic wrestling, that type of wrestling. All right. I wrestled off is the only sport I ever did. My high school did not have... Uh, American football, that they, I went to a Benedictine high school run by monks, they couldn't afford the insurance for football, so I wrestled all my four years of high school, it's the only sport I ever did. Uh, I was undefeated in dual meets my senior year. So I think I got pretty good. I wrestled most of the year outside of practice. Right? So what's the real reason why you go to practice? Now you, now you, athletes, think about this for a second. When you're in the game, not practice, in the game where it counts, do you have time to think about what your body is doing? For example, who plays soccer? Me. All right, soccer. Yes. Do you have time to think? You're in the game, right? The game. You're running around. You're doing a the, the ball is coming to you. Do you have time to stop and think? <gasps> Here comes the ball. <laughs> I must now blade my foot at a 45 degree angle. I must kick the ball with such trajectory so as to launch the ball in front of my uh, teammate, but not too far, or else it'll be off sides. Do you have time to think about that? <clears throat> You're nuts. Anybody? <laughs> are you, do you, I mean? Other, do you have time to think about what? Where's the? Who else, What's the sport you play? Yeah, rugby. Do you have time to think yeah. in the in the game? Like think about what you're doing. What you, or you? just respond? Your body just <laughs> respond. Just respond. Now, when you're in practice, do you do the same drills and the same plays over and over and over and over and over again? Why? What are you trying to build? What are you trying to develop? By doing those exercises, those drills, over and over and over again. Like when you play tennis, you go, okay, I'm at tennis practice, ready? Whoop, forehand, whoop, backhand. I'm gone, practice over. Is that what happens? How many forehands do you, how many backhands do you, how many times do you pick up the rugby ball? How many times do you pick up the football, how many times, over and over, why? What are you trying to build? Muscle memory. Muscle memory. You do those things over and over again. So it becomes almost unconscious. It becomes part of who you are. Because when you're in the game where it counts, you train your body to respond and to react a certain way to the situation that it finds itself in. My brothers in Christ, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Now, I said I used to wrestle. I went to my high school reunion this was like a long time after I graduated from high school. And I was talking with a classmate of mine. And a guy from my wrestling team came up behind me. And so I didn't know he was there. And so he just sneaks up. And all of a sudden, boom, he puts his arms around me. Right? That's, in wrestling, that's called getting wrapped up. When somebody, you know, puts like a bear hug around you, that's called getting wrapped up. And as soon as he did that, without even thinking, without even thinking, I did kind of a wrestling move on him. I, without even thinking about it. I want to show you what that looks like. Got to He basically walked up behind me and he put he put his arms around do it. Okay, now. This is This is called getting wrapped up. Now, in wrestling there's two things that you never want to do. Right? You you never want you never want to stop moving and you never want to create space. Okay? Stopping in wrestling is bad. You always wanna keep moving, and you never want to create space. Space is bad. You wanna eliminate space, close the gap, as much as possible. So you see from here, there's no gap. <laughs> so, so in practice, I can't tell you how many hundreds of times over four years we did this drill. So what you do when you get wrapped up, is first thing you do, wrap good, tight, tight. So first thing you do is drop your hips. You lower your center of gravity in order to create space, all right? Now notice when I did that, when I lowered my center of gravity, automatically his arms start to go apart, right? So at the same time that I drop my hips, I also pop my hips out and start moving forward. And then I take my thumb and I jam my thumb and rip his arm out, right? So now it's my turn to go on offense. So I take my right arm, I cut through, now I attack, attack! You can sit down, thanks. But the the thing is this, the thing is this, I haven't been on a wrestling mat in 20 years but I still as soon as he did that I felt that and all I mean I did it without even thinking right muscle memory after I did I was like what am I doing you know he was like he was like he thought it was hysterical my brothers in Christ when you go to mass you're in practice and you're trying to build spiritual muscle memory We do the same things at Mass over and over and over and over again. We receive Jesus Christ in his word in the first part of the Mass. And we receive Jesus Christ again in the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist in the second part of the Mass. We receive Jesus twice at each and every Mass, building that spiritual muscle memory. Because where's the game? Out there! Mass is practice. That's where the game is. Our faith means nothing to us if we just go to Mass and leave our faith in the church. We have to take what we have received and go out to be Eucharist to the world or else our faith is meaningless. Who's your opponent out here in the world? We live in a world that tells you that there is no God. Unless you can see, taste, touch, measure, or quantify something, it's not real. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Samuel Harris, Daniel Dennett, Stephen Hawking. They're filling your mind with crap. They're trying to tell you that people who believe in God are unintelligent, weak minded fools who need a crutch to get through life. Science has the answer to everything. That's what they tell you. They try to convince you that a man can marry another man or a woman can marry another woman or in the United States, they're marrying buildings, trees, rocks, animals. They're trying to tell you that guys aren't really guys and girls aren't really girls. You can be a girl one day and a guy another day. It's transgender nonsense. They're trying to tell you a child in the womb is not a person. They're trying to tell you old people are worthless. So the culture should kill them through euthanasia because they're no longer useful to society. That's what you're up against out here. In order to really be the person who God created you to be, you need that spiritual muscle memory, which trains your body to respond to everything this culture is throwing at you. That's what Christ wants to do for you at every Mass. But here's the thing. God is not going to force you to love him. Unless you're open to receiving what he's giving you, he's not going to force you. That's not how it works. So, Let's talk about how do you get more out of mass? How do you help to build that spiritual muscle memory? We all know what happens, right? The priest says, we ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You sit down and your mind is gone. You're thinking about your girlfriend. You're thinking about Pokemon. Pokemon. You're thinking about the PlayStation. You're thinking about where you're going to go eat after church. You're thinking about the homework you got to do. You're thinking about a sporting event. Your mind is every place else except focusing on what God is trying to do for you in his word. Here's how you get more out of Mass right from the start. First of all, you have to listen. How do you do that? However you have to do it. If you have to follow along in the missile while the person's reading, do that. If you have to look at the person so you can focus on what they're saying, do that. You have to close your eyes to block out all the other distractions so you can focus on what the person is saying, Say, do that. And while you're doing that, just ask yourself one question. What is God saying to me in and through his word? Make it personal. Make it personal because God is speaking to you and to your situation in your life. Look, you can't fool God. God knows that when you come to mass, that you are worried. All you see see your parents doing is fighting. And you're asking yourself, oh my goodness, are they going to get divorced? If they get divorced, what's going to happen to me? God knows that even though you know it's wrong, you're pressuring your girlfriend for friends with benefits. You're hanging around with guys right now who are trying to give you drugs and alcohol. And trying to tell you, "You're you you're cool if you do that. God knows you better than you know yourself because he made you. And God wants you to know right from the start, right from that first reading, that he loves you, that he understands, that you don't have to be afraid, that you're not alone, that he's with you. And he wants to tell you that right from the first reading. So if you... Pay attention and open yourselves and ask yourselves, how are you speaking to me, Lord? How are you addressing my life and my situation personally? God will speak to you. He will touch you because you're open to receive everything he wants to give you right from the start. And I promise you, he will touch you if you have the courage to listen. Because when God speaks to you, men, he doesn't speak to you here with these, things, with these things on the side of your head. He speaks to you in what St. Benedict called the arum cordis, the ear of the heart because the heart is a place where your desire for God lives inside of you that's what he wants to speak to that's where he's trying to touch you right from the start in every Mass because my young friends in the word we just don't read about Jesus we encounter him in the word we just don't become friends with Jesus we fall in love with him in the word we just don't say we're good people we give our lives to him now here's something that I think you'll find very interesting you go to Mass right? How often do they have mass here? Today. Every day. Okay. So some of you might go every day, some a few days a week. Most of you probably go every Sunday if you're Catholic. Now, what if I told you that we Catholics know more scripture than anybody else? What would you say to that? You're like, pff, pff, I was with you, Deacon, until you said that. But hold on a second. What we don't understand or appreciate is when we are at mass and the responses and the words of the priest, we're actually praying the Bible. Let me let me tell you what I mean. I was doing some television work a few years back and I was working with our Protestant brothers and sisters. And when I was working with them, you know, I tell you, I have a great appreciation for how much our Protestant brothers and sisters love the word of God, how much they love the Bible, how much they spend time breaking open God's word. You know, I I learned a lot from them (laughs) and they sure enough learned a lot from me. One guy, though, was a little upset that I was asked to be part of this this, uh, little group. And so he tried to challenge me one day. He said, "Uh, you're that Catholic deacon? Yes, pastor. And you go to mass? Yes, pastor. And then he took out his uh, King James or whatever version of the Bible he had. He waved it at me. He said, you can't show me from the word of God where your mass comes from. (laughs) (laughs) He said, pastor. How much time you got? Because here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the mass line by line. And I'm going to show you from your Bible where the mass comes from. He, he thought I was, he went, okay, because he thought I was bluffing. And <laughs> you soon learn you don't bluff with me. So he took out his, I said, Here we go. have you ever been to mass? He said, no. So I took out my a little thing that had the, you know, what we say at mass. I said, we're going to start from the beginning and show you I'm not cheating. We're going to go line by line. If you're not happy, we'll stop. He said, okay. So I began. As you know, we say in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. I said, open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. So you open up the Bible to Matthew 28, last chapter of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is kind of giving his last instructions to his apostles before he ascends to the Father. And he says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then we say, amen. So to open up your Bible to 1 Chronicles 16, verse 36. So he flips to the Old Testament, looks up 1 Chronicles 16, 36, where he read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, and praised the Lord. So now I'm going to speed it up a little bit because of time. But just know that we, he, one line, I stopped. He looked it up. If he was satisfied, we went to the next one, all right? So I'm going to speed it up here. But I'll show you the first place where we stopped. I said, then the priest says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 13. Or the priest could say, the Lord be with you. Ruth chapter two, verse four. And with your spirit. 2 Timothy 4, 22, and Galatians six, eighteen. He said, we also have a penitential rite. The confitier. He said, the what? I said, let me show you <laughs> from the word of God. I confess to Almighty God and you, my brothers and sisters, I have greatly sinned. James five, sixteen. Psalm 51, verse five and six. John, first John 1 verse 9, second Samuel 24 10, just for that one line. In my thoughts and in my words, Romans 12, 16 and James 3 verse 6. In what I've done and what I felt to do, James 4 17, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, Luke 18 13, therefore I ask Blessed Mary, Luke 148, Ever Virgin, Isaiah 7 14, all the angels and saints, Revelation 8, 3 and 4, you my brother and sister, pray for me to the Lord our God. Baruch 1.13, 1 Thessalonians 5.25, John 5, 1 John 5.16. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins and bring us to everlasting life. 1 John 1, verse 9. Then we say, Amen, but oh, <laughs> I already showed you that one. Then outside of Lent and Advent, we have the gloria. He said, the what? I said, let me show you <laughs> from the word of God. Glory to God in the highest of earth, peace, people, goodwill. Luke two fourteen. We praise you. Psalm 105, verse 1 to 5. We bless you. Psalm 118, 26. We adore you. Psalm 29, verse 2. We glorify you. Psalm 34, 4 and Romans eleven thirty six. We give you thanks for your great glory. Revelation seven twelve. Lord God, heavenly kingdom, God Almighty, Father. Revelation 19, verse 6. Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, 2 John 3. Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of God, take away sins of the world, have mercy on us. John 1:29, 29. Take away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. Psalm 6. Verse 10. You are seated, right hand of the Father, have mercy on us, Romans 8:34 and Hebrews 8, verse 1. For you alone are the Holy One, Luke 4:34, you alone are the Lord, Revelation 15, 4, and Isaiah 37, 20. You're the most high Jesus Christ, Luke 1:32, with the Holy Spirit and the glory of God the Father, John 14, 26, and Philippians 2:11. And he hasn't stopped me yet. Now I stop myself because we get to the first place that's not from Scripture, the opening prayer. Then we have the first reading scripture, the responsorial Psalm scripture. We have the second reading scripture. We have the gospel scripture. I said, then we have the, the homily, you know, and was what you guys do. Then we pray the creed. Uh, we, what we believe as Catholics. So if someone ever asked you, you're a Catholic, what do you believe? Just pray the creed. I believe in one God, the father almighty, creator of heaven and earth for all things visible and invisible. That's your, that's your, our belief statement. Then we, you know, have intercessions. We pray for people. I said, it may not be as dramatic as what you guys do. You know, people come up and you lay hands on them and they fall down. And they, you know, but we, we pray for people who are sick, who are not there, who are in the hospital, who are in jail in orphanages and nursing homes and prisons who may have died. You know, we pray for people. Then we, we take the money, like you. <laughs> and then we have the second part. Bless are you, Lord God of all creation, because we have to receive the bread we offer you. Ecclesiastes 3.13, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. We come for us the bread of life. John 6.35, blessed be God forever. Psalm 68.36, stop. So he stopped me. So I'm like, okay, well, where would I, I get it wrong? Did I he said, okay. I said, well, it's not okay because I'm not done yet. I'm only halfway through the mass. I still have the rest of the offertory. I have the Eucharistic prayer. I have the communion rite. I'm only half done. He said, okay. I said, okay, what? You're going to be Catholic? Huh. <laughs> What was my point? To embarrass him? No. No. That my point was not to embarrass him. My point was simply this. We Catholics, all these responses you guys know, but here's what he didn't realize. Every time you go to mass, every time you say the responses when the priest says what he's supposed to say and not make it up like a lot of priests do. They think the mass belongs to them and they can change the words to be politically correct when they can't. But when they when they're praying, we're praying. Scripture. um, We we Catholics are soaked. We're drowning in the word of God at every mass. So when you say those responses, you're praying scripture. When you are listening to the readings, you're praying scripture. Almost every word we say comes right from the Bible. And why is this important? Look, because when you die and you stand before God, God is not going to ask you, this is not going to be the test. Okay. Your whole life. Here's the test. What does John 14 verse 7 say? See, God doesn't care how much scripture you memorize. What God cares about is how you live what is in this word. How do you put this into practice in your life every day? That's what matters. That's what counts. That's how God's word makes a difference in your life. When you're at mass and you're saying those prayers and you're saying those responses and you're praying the mass, You're actually taking it with you and you're living it in the world every day. That's the point. Now, then we come to the homily, right? And the homily is the place where most of you just go to sleep, right? Because, I mean, you know what homilies sound like to me? Now, what the homily is supposed to be is a breaking open and a feeding of the word of God so that God's word is just not in some book that was written 2000 years ago, that God's word becomes alive and relevant for us today, for how we live our life today. That's what the homily's supposed to be. But most homilies sound like what? Barney the dinosaur. Remember Barney when you were a kid? Now, is, wait, is he dead yet, by the way? Oh, I loathe Barney. When my kids were little, oh, I, just, I, didn't, I can't hear any more Barney. But, but you know what I hear Barney today? Priest homilies, you know what they sound like? I love you, <laughs> you love me kidding me? <laughs> We're getting killed out here by this culture that is throwing all kinds of lies in our face. And let's, let's be honest. Most of the Sunday mass going people aren't going to Bible study, aren't going to your adult education class, aren't doing anything except showing up the mass and punching the clock on Sunday. The only time they'll hear anything about what the church teaches about anything is in the homily. That's the time where God's word makes sense in our life every day. But instead, they want to make people feel good about themselves. And we get killed out here. That's why these governments think they can steamroll over us as Catholics. Because we don't know our faith. We don't live our faith. That's what the. When's the last time you heard a homily on in vitro fertilization? You don't even know what that is, do you? When's the last time you heard a homily on abortion? Because, see, priests don't want to talk about tough issues. Because people might get upset. And they might stop giving the collection. And they might say, And they wonder why so many young people like you leave the church, leave the faith. You know what I hear from you all over the world? What are you not getting from the church? I hear from young people all the time. We want to hear the truth and we're not hearing it. Because Jesus says the truth sets you free. Sets you free to do what? To be the person that God created you to be. That's what God is doing for you in the mass. He's freeing you to be the person that God created you to be. How powerful is the homily? Now, I'm not afraid to preach the truth. It's the truth in love. Paul says that in Ephesians 4.15. We have to preach the truth in love, but it's going to be the truth. Now, sometimes when you preach the truth, people aren't happy. But my job is not to make people happy. (laughs) My job is to help people get to heaven. That's my job. So I I was preaching at, at a church, at a parish mission. And typically I preach at all the masses on the weekend. So it was after one of the Mass, I was greeting people after Mass, and this guy comes up to me. Hey, Deacon, you remember me? Uh, Sir, I I apologize. I meet so many people every year. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. Uh, You spoke at the men's conference in San Antonio, Texas. Yes, yes, I did. Yes, I I was there. Remember what you preached on? Uh, Sir, I don't remember what I said yesterday. I'm sorry. He said, you preached against contraception. And I thought, oh, here we go. Here we go. This guy is now going to get upset with me. He's going to yell at me. He's going to blame me for all the problems in his life. So my strategy was to stand there, just take it, and move on. He said to me, I was scheduled to get a vasectomy that week. And I went home, and I told my wife what you said. So he, t- he turns around, and he spots his wife, and he calls her over. So... The wife starts to walk toward her. She's got three boys running around her like the moon around the earth, and she's holding a baby, and she's crying. So I'm saying to myself, this isn't good. <laughs> this isn't good. Now they're both going to start yelling at me. They're both going to tag team me here. They're going to blame me for all this. I said, so, okay, just stand here, take it, and move on. So when she reaches us, he literally takes the baby out of his wife's arms and puts the baby in my arms, the little girl. And he, and he says, she's here because of you. And I'm a little confused. So his wife says now, you don't understand. We always wanted a girl. But after having the three boys, we said, that's it. Snip, snip, snip. But then my husband came home and told me what you said. And we looked at each other. And we knew that we couldn't do it, that we had to trust God. So we started using natural family planning. And Deacon, we got our girl. And the reason I'm crying, because you have no idea how much joy this little girl has brought to our family. And so she's crying and the dad is tearing up and the baby's crying. So I'm trying to find something, you know, profound to say in this Holy Spirit moment. And all I could think was, did you name her Harold? (laughs) It was awesome. It was awesome. And that's only the first time. There have been three more times, including a couple in Perth who told me they have additional children because of a homily or because of a YouTube or because of something that they heard me say. Now, it's not me, it's God. But that's what happens when you speak the truth because the word of God convicts the heart. And that's what God is trying to do for you in a homily at mass. One more example my parish is very small. It's an inner city parish. Uh, we probably have 100 families, very small. The Saturday vigil mass, Now, the, the, de- the deacon only preaches sometimes because I'm only a deacon, right? So you're supposed to hear from the priest because he's the pastor, he's the shepherd. You only hear from the deacons every once in a while. But it was my turn to preach in a parish. And whenever I prepare my homilies, I prepare them in adoration before our Lord in the blessed sacrament. So the readings—it it was during the summer. It wasn't like a pro-life month or a pro-life day, but the readings left themselves to—I felt doing off to, you know, to a, a pro-life message. So I wrote the homily, and at that Saturday night mass, Father finished opening prayer, sat down. The lector gets up to read, and I noticed that this girl in her early twenties walked into the church and sat in the back pew. And I look, I said, "Hmm, I don't know her," because you only have a hundred families in the parish; you kind of know everybody but we do have a hospital across the street. And often people who are visiting friends and loved ones will come across the street for mass. So I thought maybe she was from, you know, from the hospital. So I made a, a mental note, say something to her on the way out. So I, mass went as normal, read the gospel, preached my homily, finished mass. We processed out and went up to her. I said, uh, hey, I'm Deacon Harold. I serve here at Immaculate Heart. Are you visiting with us today? She said, yes. I said, oh, and you're pregnant congratulations. Uh, When are you due? I don't know. And right then I I said, do you want to talk? She said, yes. So we slid down to the end of the pew. And she told me that she's from Portland. I I live in Portland, Oregon, on the West coast of the United States. So she says, I'm here from Portland when I graduated from high school, because it was only her mom and her little brother, no dad at home, when I graduated from high school, I said, I'm an adult now. I can make an adult decision. And her first adult decision, hitchhike down to Los Angeles. Los Angeles is probably a 17 or 18 hour drive from Portland. So she hitchhikes with her friend down to the Los Angeles, you know, where near where Hollywood is and all of that. And for the first few years, they lived the California dream. They get jobs as waitresses and it's parties, the beach. And after a few years, drugs, alcohol, sex, and she's pregnant. She contacts the guy that she thinks is the father and he comes and she says, she tells him I'm pregnant and she's pregnant. She said that he reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet, gave her a credit card and said go to Planned Parenthood and take care of your problem. So she takes the card, she doesn't wanna kill the child, but she takes the card and she thinks what am I gonna do now? So now her plan is to wait about a week or so Call the guy back, tell him him that that she did it, and then we'll just go from there. That was her plan. So she waits a week, calls the guy up, guy comes back, gives the card back. He said, did you take care of it? She said, yeah. (coughs) He said, good, and he left. (coughs) And she never saw him again. A few months tick by, and finally she feels the baby moving, and she has a prodigal son moment. What am I doing? It's bad enough that I'm ruining my own life. Am I gonna ruin the life of this child? And so in a moment of clarity, like the prodigal son, she decides, I'm gonna go home. She goes to the Salvation Army. They buy her a one-way bus ticket back to Portland. She gets home. Mom answers the door. Oh, it's you. Well, mom tells the mom the story. The mom says, oh, you wanna make an adult decision? You want to find out what it's like to be an adult? You're going to find out right now. And I hope your kid turns out like you, slams the door in her face. Now she's pregnant and homeless. She needs to know, where did I go for help? Where did she decide to go for help? Planned Parenthood, because they help people. So she goes to the Planned Parenthood on Martin Luther King Boulevard, four and a half blocks away from our parish. She walks in, she fills out an intake form. She sits down with a counselor. The counselor is pushing abortion on her. She said, no, what are my options? What about adoption? What, what other options do I have? And they're telling her, you're young. You made a mistake. You can take care of that mistake right now and get on with the rest of your life. No, I don't want to do it. What and they kept pushing, pushing, pushing. She got so upset that she left. Now she's standing on the sidewalk. She's trying to think what to do next. So you know how a computer has a default setting. When everything messes up, It goes back to the default. It goes back to what it knows. So say you're a Catholic falling away from the church. You have a default setting too. If you don't know anything else, you know one thing, which is what? You got to go to church. So she Googles Catholic church. First hit, my parish. She walks four and a half blocks down the street. She turns right. She walks another couple blocks. Right there is Immaculate Heart Church. When I saw her walk in that Saturday night, she had just come from Planned Parenthood. Now... She did not know Mass was going on. Her her idea was, let me find a church, let me pray, and let me figure out what to do next. That was her plan. When she saw Mass was going on, she was like, she knew she couldn't receive communion, so she, let me just sit here, and then when I find a good time to go, I'll get up and go. She said, the reason I stayed was your homily gave me hope. Okay, hold on a second. So I went, got the pastor, Father Nicholas. Hey, Father Nicholas, You see that young lady over there? We got a problem. I told him, he goes, well, you're the deacon, take care of it. (laughs) So so I go on my phone. I call one of my Physician for Life friends, his organization, Physicians for Life, doctors who are pro-life. There's a friend of mine who I know, he's an OBGYN, who I know has privileges across, at the hospital across the street. So I call him up. Hey, doc, Deacon Harold. Deacon, great deal. Doc, we got a problem. So I tell him real quick, he goes, Meet me across the street in 15 minutes, in the emergency room. So, we waited 10 minutes, because all we gotta do is walk across the street. We meet him in the emergency room, we go up to OBGYN, the area. He goes into the room with her, and he starts, now I'm in the hallway, because I don't know this girl, and, you know, when you go for an exam, you got to take your clothes off, put that skimpy nightgown on. I don't know who this girl is. The church got enough problems. Right. I, I'm, a, I'm in the hallway. But, I, you know, he's but he's I, he's, do, he's doing blood and urine and checking her out and checking everything. And then he says to her, uh, I'd like to do an ultrasound. And she said, that's where you can see the baby. Right. He said, yes. Would that be OK? She said, yeah, that's OK. Then she goes, Deacon, can you come in with me? And I said, okay. So we went into an adjacent room, and uh, the equipment was there. The doctor's going to do it himself. She lies down on the table, and I'm standing here. She's laying down here. The machine is here. The doctor's right on the other side of the machine. And so anybody seen an ultrasound before? Okay. You know that when they prepare, they got to put that jelly on, right? So they put the, they squeeze it, the they put the jelly, and she got a little nervous. So she reached her hand up and grabbed my hand because she's a little nervous. I said, oh, don't worry. It'll be okay. I, I've been through this before. You're going to be fine. <laughs> and so, and so the, you know, the doctor starts for the first couple minutes, he's not saying anything because I think he was looking for any birth defects, any anomalies, something like that. But after a couple minutes, he says, would you like to see? She says, yes. So he flips the screen around and I lean over a little bit and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Cause I have four kids, including twins. And when you have twins, you do twice as many ultrasounds. So I know what I'm looking at. And so she's like, she's a little confused about what she's looking at. He goes, wait, watch. Look, there's a foot. Look, There's a hand. And he slides it over. You see the heart. And she's looking. And she's, they told me it was a blob of tissue. They told me it wasn't a person. Who told you that? Planned Parenthood. So the doctor says, Do you want to find out what sex it is? She said, yes. And I said, oh, well, this ought to be interesting because sometimes the baby doesn't cooperate. But that night, the Lord was on our side. So it's a boy. And now she's squeezing my hand. And she's shaking. And she's looking at the screen. And tears are coming down her eyes. And she kept looking. She kept saying over and over, my son. My son. My son. Oh, Lord. You know, I, you know, I could still, I could still smell the room. I could feel her hand, her cold, clammy hand in my hand. I remember looking at the doctor, and the doctor's, like, got tears coming down his face. And I'm standing like, man, I'm still holding, I'm like, man, this is, this is deep, man. This is, like, real stuff, man. You know, I'm, I'm, i mean, like, this is beautiful. She's seeing her baby for the first time, and she, you know. So, so the doctor finishes up, he prints some pictures for her, so she could take with her. And he says, he gives her a card. I'm gonna see you for free for the rest of the pregnancy. I will take care of you. You don't have to worry about anything. Great. We still got a problem, she ain't got nowhere to live. So I called the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Hey, it's Deacon Harold. Deacon, uh, great. we got a problem. So I brought her there. Now they don't have uh, uh, housing at the Crisis Pregnancy Center, but they do have families that they place girls with who don't have another place to stay. So they placed her with a family and she, I went with her to make sure she got settled in, that she was comfortable and you know, she was just so thankful and grateful. I said, you know what, why don't you give me your, your mobile your, your something, and I'll call you in a few days just to, to check to see how you're doing. Oh, thank you Deacon, thank you, oh, I can't thank you. And I said, no, no, don't thank me. This is the church, this is what we do. Oh, thank you, I said, so a few days later I called her. How's it going? Oh, this is so great they're taking such good care of me I called the doctor made an appointment and this is just so I mean she was so happy but I could tell that she wanted something else I said is there anything else we could do for you oh no you've done too much I can't ask you for anything I said no 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 please you need to ask go ahead she goes well I've been praying about it I want to come back to the church but RCIA doesn't start till the fall I said oh is this the summer I said no RCIA starts right now Bible catechism let's go So I did a private RCIA with her during the rest of the summer. In September, Father received her back into the church. Then she has the baby. And she wants me to do the baptism, which I can do as a deacon. But I have to ask permission from Father Nicholas. So I said, Father, uh, she wants me to do the baptism. He goes, of course you're going to do the baptism. You've been in this thing since the beginning. And who showed up at the baptism? Grandma. Why? Because this child, this new life, helped to bring her family back together. Now, it's interesting. Her son goes to my school uh, where the twins go, where my twins go to school. My twins are in eighth grade. He's obviously younger. But every time I go to pick the twins up and I look in the playground and I see him running around, I think to myself, what if I would have stood in that ambo and preached a Barney homily that night? What would have happened to her? And what would have happened to that baby if I didn't have the courage to preach the truth? That's how a homily can transform people's lives. Because that is not my word, it's God's word. Look, I'm just the instrument. God's the musician. And we're all instruments in God's hands. You have to ask yourself, how is God going to use you? Think about it. The, The great American playwright, author Mark Twain, said the two greatest days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Why are you here? What purpose does God have for you? Now, you're, you're getting an incredible foundation here at this school. There is no doubt about that. But what is God going to do with your life? The holy sacrifice of the mass helps you figure that out. Let's talk about some things that you see all the time at mass that you, it just sometimes it goes, it goes by so fast that you don't appreciate what God is doing. For example, you notice that, uh, well, you don't have the deacons here, but the priest... Uh, takes water and drops it in the chalice that still has wine in it at that point, right? He hasn't done the consecration yet, still wine. But he takes water and he drops the water in. You've seen that, right? Why does he do that? If you look at the catechism in the section on the Eucharist, it talks about in the year 155 AD, 155, that Justin Martyr wrote a letter to Antonius Pius, the emperor at the time, explaining what Christians did. One of the things he says, they took water mixed with wine. So they've been doing it ever since, uh, well, he wrote in 155, the middle of the second century, which means that they did it before that. So very early in the church, they were, and we still do it to this day. Why? Why is the priest mix the water and the wine together? We, you see it all the time, but you ju- it goes by so fast that we don't stop to appreciate what that means. See, excellent. See, why I love being Catholic, we have something called multivalent meaning multi-different levels and layers of meaning. You are exactly right, my friend. At one level, that's exactly what it means. Because remember when when Christ was on the cross and Longinus (laughs) speared him in the side, what came out? Blood and water, right? Water for the sacrament of baptism, blood for the sacrament of the Eucharist, right? In fact, the church fathers talk about the church being born from the side of Christ, right? Because those are two of the three sacraments of initiation. Exactly right. But what else does that drop of water represent? All of us. That drop of water represents all of us. And think about this for a second. Once you drop that drop of water in the wine, can you take it back out again? No, that's the point. That if we are all represented, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our joys, our sorrows, everything we have and everything we are are offered along with that bread and wine taken by the angels to the feet of Almighty God. It's talking about the book of Revelation. God blesses it and returns it to us as the body, blood, soul, divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what's included in there? That drop of water that represents us and our lives. The reason why I can't take the water out because in that matter, our lives are so intertwined with God's life. They are so closely linked and infused together that we can't separate ourselves from Him. That's the point. And notice the priests, bless our you Lord God of all grace because we have the bread to offer right? and the wine to offer. and in Jesus the Last Supper, He offered the bread and the wine separately, separately. Why? I mean, think about it. You could probably shave 10 seconds off the mass if he just raised them up and did them both at the same time. But why did he do them separately? Why did Jesus at Last Supper consecrate both separately? Think about it. Think about the worldview of a Jewish person. When they offered a sacrifice, right? Remember they offered, look in the book of Leviticus, lamb, sheep, goats, turtle doves, right? All different kinds of things. When you cut that animal open, It bleeds, right? If it bleeds enough, what's going to happen? It's going to die. So when you separate body and blood, it's an action symbolic of death. That's what Christ is doing at the Last Supper. He's saying that he's offering a sacrifice by separating the body and blood. It's an action symbolic of death. Now, hold on. What happens at the Agnus Dei, at the Lamb of God? The priest breaks off a piece of the host which is now, right, body, blood, Soul, divinity, drops it into the chalice, the reunification of body and blood that shows that we are receiving the resurrected Jesus. And how does the priest show this even more powerfully? He elevates. Ece, agnus, dei. He says the same words that John the Baptist says. Remember, he's baptizing people, and he stops. Because he sees Jesus coming. He takes attention away from himself and points toward Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. And at that point in the mass, the priest is elevating and showing we're receiving the resurrected Jesus. He elevates, he takes attention away from himself and directs people to Jesus. Says the same word John the Baptist says, ecce agnus dei, ecce quitoli picata mundi. Then the last part, biate qui acenem agni vocati sunt." Revelation 19 verse nine, blessed are those who are called to the supper of the lamb, or actually in the Greek, the wedding feast of the lamb, where Christ is the eternal bridegroom giving life through that Eucharist to his bride, the church. Every mass, that's what God is doing. So here's something important. The words that Jesus uses at mass. This is my body. This is my blood. How do we know that he means it literally? How do we know it's not just figuratively? How do we know he's just not saying it's a sign or a symbol? Our first clue is John 6. Remember, we already talked about that. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. How did they hear Jesus speaking? Because it was actually an idiom. For the Jewish people, you say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's like when you're psyching yourself up for battle, like when they went to battle the Philistines, they're about to fight the Philistines. We're going to eat their flesh and drink their blood. That means that we're going to go and we're going to, you know, it was it was an idiom. So maybe that's what Jesus meant. But hold on. When he says it in John six, what do they say in return? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they, he didn't mean it was just an idiom for going into battle. They heard him say, eat his flesh. So what does Jesus say? Oh, wait a minute. I only meant it symbolically. Let me explain what I mean. No, he went on to say, unless you eat my flesh and drip my blood, you have no life. Whoever eats my flesh and drip my blood lives in me and I in him. So he goes on. To, and so what they said, we're out of here. This guy's nuts. Eat his flesh, drink his blood. We're, we're, we are out. And so what does Jesus run and stop? the Wait, come back. I only meant, wait, let me, let me, let me explain what I really mean. Is that what Jesus did? No, he let them go. Because he came to tell the truth. In fact, he turns to his apostles. What about you guys? You guys going to join them? And Peter said, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's what Jesus does at the last time. He's giving us the words of eternal life. Now, how do we know we're not speaking symbolically? When I was in Perth, the first time I came, I gave a talk at a university on atheism. At the end of that talk, there were atheists there. At the end of the talk, one of the guys, one of the atheists, Came up to me, said, "You know, uh, I, I think it did a good job here. You know, you gave me some things to think about." I said, "Wonderful." I said, oh, "What? Awesome. What do you teach here?" He said, "Greek." I said, "Really?" I said, do you have a, happen to have a New Testament in your office? He said, yes. I said, could you get it for me, please? I'm dying to ask you a question. So now he's intrigued. Why would this Christian guy be asking me? Why does he want to ask a, an atheist guy a question? So he went and got the New Testament. Now, why would an atheist have a New Testament in his office? It's just, right, he teaches Greek. It's just a form of literature for him. It's just a form of Greek literature. The, the, what, the, what Jesus doesn't really mean anything to him. But I said, open up to, to, to the Luke 22. So we, he opens up to, to uh, Luke verse 22, and where it says, You know, Jesus says, Take this, all of you, eat it. This is my body. This is my blood. I said, Can you tell me what Jesus is, wh- 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 what's going on in that sentence? He looks at the sentence in Greek, and he says, The subject of the sentence is making an absolute identification with the object. I said, Can you say that slower so I could tell people what you mean? He laughed. He said, the person who's speaking, the subject of the sentence, is using the demonstrative pronoun this in order to absolutely identify himself with the object, whatever this is. I said, so can you get from that? It's a sign. It's a symbol. It only represents. Sometimes it is. sometimes Can you get that? And he said, absolutely not. I said, let me be clear. If the person speaking was holding their own arm or their own leg or their liver or kidney or something in their hands and they said, this is me, that's what the person is saying, he said, yes. I said, how do you get a different meaning from what you just told me? How do you see something different in that text from what you just told me? He said, I saw Jesus, which I knew what that meant. So here's what he means. Exegesis is when you analyze a text and you extract meaning from the text. I saw Jesus is when you read your own meaning into the text. So the text now means what you want it to mean, not what it actually says. So Jesus meant every word that he said. Here's something interesting he says, drink my blood. That's very interesting because that would have sounded very strange to the apostles. Why? Because there was a strong prohibition against drinking blood. In Semitic languages like Hebrew and Aramaic, there are no superlatives. So we use superlative words all the time to describe something to the highest degree, like the greatest, the best, the most. They had no words like that in, in, in Semitic languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. So in order to, this, one of the things they did to describe something to the highest degree, they said something three times. So for example, the Sanctus at Mass, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord three times, because the Lord gets the highest degree of holiness. So here in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10: if any man of the house of Israel, any strangers that soldier among them eats blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from the people. That's one. Verse 12: Therefore I've said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Two. Verse 14. For the life of every creature is the blood. Therefore I said to the people of Israel, you should not eat the blood of any creature. Three. Don't eat blood, don't eat blood, don't eat blood. But Jesus says in the New Testament, drink my blood. Why? Why does Jesus say now drink my blood? It says, for the life of the flesh is the blood. Now who's in charge of uh, of life? God, right? If the blood is the life, who's in charge of life? God. In the Old Testament, who's the only one that could touch the blood? The priest. The priest. The priest. Only one that can touch the blood. But now Jesus says, if the, if the life is God's blood, he wants to drink because he wants God's life in us. He wants his life in us. That's his point. That's why he says, eat my flesh, because I want my life in you. Think about it. Every time you get up off the benches to walk forward to receive Jesus, that action is saying something. It's not just another part of mass. Stand, sing, sit, stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit, sing, go home. What's happening? Every time you get up, you're saying something. That action of getting up and walking toward the Eucharist, you're saying, Lord Jesus Christ, I love you more than anyone or anything in this world. I love you so much that I want you to create your life in me. That's what you're saying every time you receive Jesus. And Jesus is waiting, waiting to give you his life. And then what do we do with that? At the end of Mass, the priest, or the, the, if the deacon's there, he'd do it, but the priest kicks you out. Ite misa est. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Get out! You just received the Eucharist. Now go out there and be Eucharist to the world. Practice is over. Practice is over. Now go out there and play the game. My attitude, when I, when I walked on that mat, nobody beats me. Let me tell you about my favorite match, senior year. I was ranked number two in wrestling in the state. I was, rest, I was wrestling the number five ranked wrestler. He was ranked lower than me, but the newspaper said, the sports section said, I was going to lose. Why? Because even though we're, I'm ranked higher than him, this kid was bigger and stronger than me, which he was. It was an away match. We're wrestling in his gym. And so we get to the gym and you know, I'm on the mat warming up. And his, he's warming up. And so the time comes for us to wrestle. They, they call him out. The crowd is cheering. They call me out. Boo, boo. That's all right. So get ready. Ready? Wrestle. Boom, we're in it. Now, wrestling is three two minute periods. The third period is about to begin. I'm down on points, but I know I can beat this kid. Because they were right. He was big. He's bigger than me, strong. You just can't muscle a guy like that. So I had to, you know, you guys play sports, 10% physical, where's the rest of it? Right here. So here's what I did. Now I was down in the third period. It's called referee's position. So I'm down, he's on top of me, and he has his hand here and his hand on my shoulder, and you start from that position, ready, wrestle. So I go to what's called a stand up. So I fire up to this position right here. Now remember, one of the things I said in wrestling, you never stop moving, right? I got to here and I stopped on purpose. He chopped me down. We rolled off the mat. So we walk back toward the center of the mat. I'm looking at coach. Coach is like, this means pick it up, pick it up. I'm like, so I get back down. Ready, wrestle. I fire up to here again and I stop on purpose. He chops me down. We roll off the mat. We go back, I look at coach. Coach is like, third time. Ready, wrestle. I go to, now, now I know what he's going to do, right? Because I baited him. So when I know what his body position was, so when I go to do the stand up, I know exactly what his body's doing, where his body's gonna be. I do what's called a crossover switch. So I put my left hand over my right hand, I bring my left leg through, because I know as he is standing up, he's favoring this right leg. So by shifting my body weight through, he's putting more on this right leg, he's leaning toward me. Now he's off balance. I chop his right arm, put it through his crotch, now I throw a half Nelson around his head so deep, I'm grabbing his chin from the other side of his face. And I start cranking the half. And when you crank that half, every time you crank, it gets tighter and tighter. And I'm cranking him nice and slow. Because I want him to feel every ounce of pain as I turn him over on his back and I'm like yeah and I'm nice and slow and right when I'm about to pin him I whisper in his ear does your mother have a camera so I, I turn him over on his back I pin the ref blows the whistle boom he slams the mat that means you pin the match is over so we get up I go to shake his hand, he comes at me. The ref jumps in between us. (laughs) Because my attitude, when I walk on that mat, nobody beats me. And that should be our attitude, men of God. When we walk out of mass and we go back into this culture that's trying to destroy your faith, your attitude should be, nobody beats me. The redefinition of marriage doesn't beat me. Transgender garbage doesn't beat me. In vitro fertilization and life issues don't beat me because I've been to practice. I have my spiritual muscle memory. So my brothers in Christ, when you face the challenges in the culture, when your so-called friends try to tell you, yeah, take advantage of that girl, friends with benefits. Take that drink of alcohol, come on, man, you'll be cool. Do those little bit of drugs, do all this. Stuff. When they keep coming at you, when this culture keeps coming at you, here's what I want you to do, because you've been to practice. You got word in sacrament, you're ready. And nobody beats you. So next time the culture throws that stuff at you, you crank that half around Satan's head so deep that you're grabbing his chin from the other side of his face. You whisper in his ear, does your mother have a camera?